Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine, And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says right and wrong. Do you know the difference? I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. Quick warning to the listeners that this is one of those conversations we had that went way longer than intended, so we decided to split this up for you. Divide right down the middle uh, where we're going to have half of our conversation in this episode and then continue with the second half in the next episode. Yeah, we got something exciting to talk about, guys. Something I'm so excited about. You know, we talk all about transhumanism and, and bioenhancements. We've talked about it so many times in this episode, or not in this episode, but in the series, like the idea of, of taking humans and making them better. You know, 
You're staring at me blankly, Jim. I'm, I'm listening, yes. Okay. So we, we want to make them better by giving them claws, by giving them sharp clamps. fangs. Yes, clamps, yeah. yeah. Well, cl- clamps with claws on them. Oh, okay. <laughs> claw claw clamps. Claw clamps. Yeah. Claw clamps, yes, of course. Uh, of course, wings. I mean, humans need wings generally. Tails. I can eat like 30 or 40 wings all by myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, we've done an episode called One Two, Our, Our Two Cents on uh, More Senses, which was all about how we might be able to use technology to... To expand our our ability to sense stuff around us, uh-huh. right? So we've talked about how to enhance ourselves that way. Uh, we've explored how bio enhancements present some pretty difficult ethical questions. I remember we used to talk about: uh, Is it ethical? Say an athlete wants to just cut their healthy legs off to get fake legs. No, that's not the right word. Not fake legs. We Artificial. To get, uh, prosthetic legs sure. that sure. might be better than the legs he or she was born with. Right. And then also just on the on the other side of it, is it ethical for a doctor to perform such a procedure? Right. Like, yeah. like these are tricky questions that we don't have the answers to. Uh, but instead of looking at those, I thought we could actually look at a related but slightly more focused topic, the concept – of moral bioenhancements. Yes. What if instead of making humans better, we make them better? Yes. Instead of better at clamping and better at uh, clawing and running and flying, make th- make them better at not stealing out of the donation box. Right. Right. Uh, all the all the little petty things that you know add up at the day, like you, you're you're. From the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed, all those little things that irritate you because if people were just decent like you were decent, yeah. everyone would get along much better. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Sure, sure. Making people uh, less aggressive and more altruistic. Yeah. Like, like you know, if they would – if people would just let you into that lane of traffic, then everything would move much more smoothly. It works like a zipper, people. First one car from one lane and then one from the next. But, of course, that's not how it works because jerk faces are out there. But what if we could have a little – switch that said jerk face off and everyone was a non-jerk face. Well, that's it would the, make YouTube a lot more enjoyable. <laughs> yes, the comment sections would be so much different. Although, uh, our, so although different. Our, our, our commenters are really very lovely. Yes. We're not we, talking about you guys. No, no. It's, you guys are beautiful. It's not you. It's those other jerk faces. Uh, we So we wanted to talk about this concept of moral bioenhancements. Now, to talk about that, we first have to just discuss what is morality in the first place. Uh, and it's a tricky thing, right? It's, it's basically knowing the difference between right and wrong if you want to be super, super general about High it. High level, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that, that in itself is, is, uh, it's deceptive in its simplicity, right? Well, yeah, we generally think it describes a certain type of cognition and behavior, right? That yeah. there is a decision making process in the, that happens in the brain or certain types of reactions to stimuli that we class under morality. Yes. And there there are a lot of different types of morality, right? Like sure. there, there are things that some people consider moral dilemmas that other people would not even categorize as moral questions. For example, uh, generally pe- people almost universally think of things like not causing harm to others and uh, making things fair. Those are pretty universal moral principles. But there are also things like uh, – Certain types of ideas about purity, ideas about uh, uh, loyalty and obeying authority, yeah, and things that people 
in some places and, and some individuals think of as very important moral issues and other people don't even categorize as moral. Right, right. So one might ask, where did this whole concept of morality come from? Uh, there are a couple of philosophers that I was reading about and, and their views on the subject specifically because they are advocates for moral bioenhancements. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, those philosophers are Julian Savulescu and Ingmar Persson. Uh, they argue that morality arose out of the way that we humans would group together way, way, way back, right? You know, although to the point where we were just tiny social groups of humans uh, originally traveling together and then eventually settling down and trying to create like a, an actual uh, uh, settlement, I guess. Yeah. So the <laughs> theory, down. the theory there is that evolutionarily there's a survival advantage to group behavior that you, you have a better chance of passing on your genes if you work together with others and you work together with others better if you behave well. Yes. That's essentially the, the perspective saying that uh, morality is that sense that makes us feel badly when we cause harm to other people and to a lesser extent when we allow someone to come to harm, not through our direct action but through our inaction right. and specifically within our social group. So we feel worse if we're directly responsible for that harm. Uh, morality and causation are linked according to their argument and they also say that the further out you get from a social group, the less badly you would feel about harming someone. So – uh, uh, so so yeah. So if I if I had the chance to uh, to to through an action do something mean to to you guys, yeah, I might I might feel pretty bad about it. If it was to someone in the next office over, eh. right? Because you don't know that person. Yeah, yeah. This is also kind of coming into something that I used to read about. Uh, I think in, in the Straight Dope, where Cecil Adams argued that an, essentially every group's name for themselves. Tends to mean the people. people. Yep. And then everyone's name for everyone else is those godless heathens over yeah, there. The barbarians. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that's an illustration of this idea, right? They're, that other group of people are not within the social group. And so therefore you don't feel that sense of, of, uh, responsibility and accountability or, or even if you feel responsible, you don't feel badly about being responsible for their, uh, for anything negative happening to them. Well, a much simpler way to think about this even is in your day-to-day life. You don't you treat other people in traffic a way that you would not treat your close friends and family members. Well, it depends on what they're doing in traffic. According to everyone I know, I cut off everybody in conversation. So apparently I'm just <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about a morally normal person. <laughs> oh, a, that's fair. That's fair. Not a sort it of uh, lawful evil schemer. It's more neutral evil, but thank you. Uh, so as our world has grown, according to these philosophers, uh, we've become members of a global community and those natural inclinations aren't sufficient to keep things civil because the world's just too big. There are too many people and social groups are too fragmented for a sense of morality to compensate. So – they point out three things that have come as a result of this. They say that as as a group, human beings have become more uh, loss-averse, meaning that we try to protect ourselves against loss rather than pursue improvement. Mm-hmm. So rather than say, hey, we can work to make things better, we say, hey, let's make sure things don't get worse. This would manifest as a status quo bias. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, we just don't want things to change. Right. Or, or at least we don't – things are pretty lousy. I don't want them to get worse than they are now. Mm-hmm. Like that kind of idea. 
Uh, also that we focus mostly on our immediate social group and the immediate future. So if someone is outside your social group, you're less likely to be concerned for their well-being. And you may also view any offense they commit as being greater than you would feel if someone within your social group had done the same thing. Yep. So you you judge people by their actions, not just on the actions alone, but whether or not they are within your particular social group. Yeah, yeah. You judge outsiders more harshly. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I think it's also interesting that they point out the immediate future problem because that's something else that as just sort of an armchair your observer, you could argue you see throughout lots of different aspects of life where organizations, you may feel like an organization is making decisions that are for short-term benefit but will be a detriment in the long term. Right. Well, according to these philosophers, that's an issue that's just – it goes all the way down to the way you treat your, your immediate uh, friends and family. Uh, that It's just innate and it's something that we have to work to get past. And they also say that uh, we feel less responsible if we're part of a large group of people causing a negative outcome for someone else than we would if it were on an individual basis. So in other words, if I were to act personally in a way that caused Lauren harm, I would feel very badly about it. If would you? I Yes. <laughs> <I'm sorry>. Yes. <laughs> I'm offended that you'd think otherwise. If I were sorry, part if I were part of a large group of people who caused harm to Lauren, I'd probably feel badly about it, but maybe not. I, I, I'd You'd be like, dis- well, it was the group. I right. mean, yeah, it wasn't really me. Diffusion of the you responsibility. Know. Yes, I guess. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it was really Josh Clark's idea in the first place. Yeah, that guy, man. That Josh what Clark. What a jerk face he is. There's a similar phenomenon with uh, reluctance to help by people in large groups. Sure. You know, if you're the only person around to help somebody who's having some kind of – who needs help, mm-hmm. uh, you're probably more likely to do it than if there are a whole bunch of people standing around and you're just waiting for somebody else to do something. Yeah, that, that I like uh, – there's some folks I've listened to on another podcast who kind of casually refer to that as someone else is smarter than I am, right? The idea that there's someone else who is more capable of handling that situation than you are. Therefore, you should hold back because you're afraid of making the situation even worse when mm-hmm. the reality often is someone needs to start to act as soon as possible and you're not likely to make it worse but through inaction you're making it worse actually sounds kind of similar to the status quo bias yeah you're, very you're similar. afraid to change things mm-hmm. so because of these uh issues the two philosophers are in favor of the idea of moral bioenhancements and we've mentioned that term several times i guess it's time to talk about what the heck they are Okay, so the basic picture of a moral bioenhancement is, number one, doesn't exist yet. Right. Or, well, Hmm. you might say that in some very primitive ways, something kind of like a moral bioenhancement could exist, maybe in some sort of drug form. Sure. Not in a very precise or advanced way. Right, not in a way where it would be, uh, you know, applicable to large populations. Uh, certainly not. And we're not really using those as therapies right now. Right. Yeah. Uh, but of course, the second thing is, what is it? Well, it would be some kind of alteration or modification. So maybe a drug therapy, a physical therapy of some kind, a mm-hmm. surgery, an mm-hmm. implant. It would be something you can do to your body, to your brain specifically, that either guides you or forces you to make moral decisions right. and, and exhibit moral behavior. You could imagine this as anything from sort of a positive reinforcement where you your body has a reward system for every time you make a decision that is quote-unquote moral, 
as is has has been determined by whomever has designed this bio enhancement mm-hmm. like well, a, like a like a little like oh like like that that good decision just tasted like chocolate a little bit yeah right. sort of sort of thing or it, it could it, be imagine if morality felt as good as eating food or having sex or other things right. that uh that give you rewards in the brain right or it could be an aversion approach where choosing the bad thing the immoral choice would make you feel much worse than you would otherwise. Uh, like in Buffy the Vampire Slayer when um, the initiative puts that chip in Spike's head and every time he tries to attack somebody, uh, he, he gets a little like like instant migraine. Yeah. It, oh, I never heard about that. It's yeah. where we learn in the Buffyverse that a computer chip is equivalent, equivalent to a human soul. <laughs> I have no problem with that particular part of their mythology. That's a, that's a good one. Another one would be a Stated clockwork... Stated being problematic. Go yes. ahead. Another Sorry. one would be a clockwork orange. Yes, sure. yes. Yeah. Clockwork orange, the Ludovico treatment. Yeah, so the, the very simple explanation is the main character is a sociopathic criminal teenager who mm-hmm. loves to commit ultra-violence against random people. Mm -hmm. And he gets sent to prison and subjected to this therapy where he's made to watch films of violent and lawless behavior and meanwhile is is given some kind of, I don't know, some kind of drug that makes him feel horrible and establishes this association in his brain. Right, right. And we'll talk a little bit more about that toward uh, the end of this episode because it does come into play again. Uh, But I, I do bet some of you out there are thinking, wait a minute, moral bioenhancement, but that couldn't happen. We, we couldn't do that with technology. And I want to say, let's consider. Mm-hmm. Okay, so first of all, I, I think we should all agree morality is located in the brain. Whatever yes. morality is, it's mm-hmm. something that's going on in the nervous system definitely, pretty much entirely a, in the brain. A, a chemical and physical process, probably. Yes, and for this reason can be altered by changes to the brain. So there's just overwhelming evidence that moral behavior is controlled by this complex set of factors in the brain, something that was referred to in one scientific review that I read as a neuromoral network. And that review was by Mario F. Mendez, and it's called The Neurobiology of Moral Behavior Review and Neuropsychiatric Implications in CNS Spectrums 2009. Mm. And so this neuromoral network, assuming it exists – there is some kind of network of processes in the brain controlling morality. Uh, whatever that is, we can call it a neuromoral network, even sure. if it's not exactly the uh, brain locations that are implicated so far in neuroscience. Sure, sure. It's a it's a variable term at this point. We're saying like we're using this term to describe something we do not fully understand uh, or can fully identify. Or right. even really vaguely understand, honestly. Like <laughs> well, we do know some things about it. And I want to I want to say what those are. So we do think that it's responsible for a system of emotions and drives that guide and motivate our moral decisions. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, if you look at what's going on in the brain when people are making moral decisions, there seem to be uh, social drives at work. So we have parts of the brain that respond to social situations and give us cues about how to you know, act in a group or act in relationship to other people. And there are emotional feelings that are generated that act as sort of like a, a sort of like cattle prod to make us do something. Mm-hmm. So some areas of the brain that are involved in morality are already known. For example, Mendez 
gives the uh, gives the example that a major area implicated in response to moral dilemmas is the ventromedial prefrontal cortex and its connected regions, especially on the right side of the brain. One of my favorite regions of the brain. Uh, there are th- this would also implicate the adjacent orbitofrontal plus ventrolateral cortex. I'm sorry to just be saying these names, but. We should list what they are. Sure. Uh, the amygdala and the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Also known as the bad neighborhood of the brain. Now, these are not the only areas of the brain that would be involved in moral, uh, moral dilemmas, moral reasoning, and moral behavior. But these are some of the main ones that have been identified. And most mm-hmm. of this has been learned through fMRI research, which usually looks something like this. You put a person in an fMRI machine and this tracks activity in different parts of the brain in real time based on blood flow. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is often used to try to figure out what part of the brain is somebody using when given a certain type of stimulus. And the stimulus in this case would be, for example, you present people with moral dilemmas. You say, would it be wrong to play soccer with a human head as the ball? Uh, Would it be moral to kill a healthy man so his organs could be donated to hospital patients who need them? Or you show people, quote, morally salient photos. So you might show people photographs of very bad things happening to people. Right. Is this good or bad? Getting close to that clockwork orange treatment, except, of course, not trying to create an aversion therapy in the process. Right. Right. They're just trying to understand what parts of the brain are you using when we make you think about stuff like this. Let's see what happens when we take the puppy away. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so these neural factors that are controlling moral behavior are physical and they can be modified chemically or mechanically. One example is acquired sociopathy from brain lesions mm. or changes in moral behavior linked to frontotemporal dementia or FTD. These are examples we know of where you make a change to somebody's brain mm-hmm. and their moral behavior changes. So if you sur- suffer a certain type of head injury, seemingly out of nowhere, you might become a pathological liar who can't stop shoplifting. Right. And it's not that, you know, that uh – you have just decided, well, after I had a near uh, miss with death, I'm just going to start taking stuff because the world owes me. whatever, right. man. Yeah. No, in other words. The, YOLO. The, the, <laughs> <laughs> that would explain YouTube comments. Uh, right, go ahead. No, uh, well, there there are faculties in the brain that are involved in moral reasoning and moral responses. And injury or damage to the brain can cause major changes in how this decision-making happens. Right, right. And and I mean again, this is where we we look at this as evidence that morality has ultimately uh its source within the gray matter that's in our skulls. I've seen some people argue otherwise saying that they thought that that was too simplistic, but when you look at the evidence of people who have suffered some form of condition or injury and their thereafter their morality has changed significantly, it becomes pretty compelling evidence to suggest that morality does have its seat in the brain. Well, now I do want to back up and and give a shout out to those critics you just mentioned uh, because they might have a point not that it's not based in the brain but that morality may be based in, in the brain in a way that is so generalized and complex mm-hmm. that it would be difficult to modify it with precision changes to certain parts of the brain. That's fair. Uh, and so th- that is another thing, though. But the general principle, I think, is very true. If you can change people's moral behavior mm-hmm. and change the moral salience of events uh, to people's brains, 
through accidental changes like injuries and illness, mm-hmm. you can in principle also change it with intentional modifications. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just a question of could we actually figure out what those modifications should be? And right. the answer might be no. Right, right. Could we cre- figure out those modifications to an extent where we actually get the outcome we desire? Uh, right. Well, a- anything having to do with the brain is is like this. We've probably said – 28 million times on this show that the, the brain is it's really quite a complicated thing and and we still know so little about exactly what's going on in there right. uh, despite our best intentions over the past uh, 60 or 70 years um uh, so some of the areas that are currently being in, investigated into how we might go about doing this or or areas that show promise I should say rather are um uh, stuff like uh, like psychopharmaceuticals um mm-hmm. you know u- using drugs to to do stuff to the brain like mm-hmm. um like a uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors uh, SSRIs um there's research that indicates that serotonin may play a role in in reducing reactive or or impulsive aggression um so therefore treatment with SSRIs might induce an an, an aversion to harming others you know that just uh, as a side note that brings up another thing we should note is that there are also different processes uh, that produce moral behavior you mentioned Serotonin. Impulsive. Oh, oh, oh no, impulsive. No. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Impulsive, impulsive aggression. Versus deliberate. Yeah. So you could have somebody who thinks about murdering somebody, and they come up with a plan, and they go and do it. There's a minority report territory here, right? Mm-hmm. Versus somebody who just gets into an argument with somebody, and they can't control their flare-up of emotions. The they get crime angry. Of yeah, and they kill somebody. Both result in homicide, mm-hmm. uh, but these are very – they apparently at least are very different things happening in the brain. So um, that's something that we should also be cognizant of. Uh, absolutely. And uh, and along along that, that deliberate aggression kind of line, there's, there's uh, another class of drugs, uh, neoepinephrine reuptake inhibitors that have been studied in relation to moral behavior and, and in, in relation to, uh, to controlling one's own actions, mm-hmm. um, to not going out and doing that thing that you thought to do that – is actually kind of crappy. Deliberate decision making. Deliberate decision making. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and and there's uh, back back to serotonin though. Uh, there are a couple studies in which um, some subjects were given citalopram and then asked to, uh, to to think through hypothetical scenarios or to play an economic game. Um, a c- couple different studies here, and the subjects who were on the SSRI were were less likely in in the hypothetical scenarios to say that it's okay to harm one person for the good of a group that was the hmm. weird weird outcome um hmm. and and uh, in in terms of the economic game the people on the SSRIs were less likely to um to penalize people who were behaving unfairly towards them in the game huh. so i mean th- these present interesting moral dilemmas that we could all think about right sure like yeah. it's not just like they make you more likely to kill somebody, but they might modify your uh, your opinion on on a question that is morally debatable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because I, I think that, that that's one of the classic moral debates of whether um, whether it's okay to sacrifice one person for the good of a group. In right. fact, that was what I brought up. Can you kill a healthy guy to take all his organs to give to ten different people who need them? Yeah. Right, and of course it's it's connected to the trolley problem, which we've mm-hmm. talked about previously, especially in regards to uh, self driving cars like these are issues that have been talked about in various incarnations for about as long as we've had philosophy and the fact that we don't 
have a definitive answer tells us that these are complicated issues and maybe one of the reasons why some people say moral bioenhancements are a tricky thing to look into because if they seem to simplify something that humans over the course of more than a thousand years haven't been able to come to a conclusion to, maybe it's a little too simplistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, other other areas that that could be potentially looked at in terms of therapies and treatments that we're currently capable of uh, uh, brain stimulation because uh, we, we we've talked on the show before about how electrical stimulation and and or electromagnetic stimulation uh, are are treatments for for very severe cases of depression mm-hmm. basically because they they change the levels of some of your brain chemicals like serotonin or, or norepinephrine. Um, for for reasons that science isn't really sure about. Yeah, sometimes we do we do therapies without really uh, in seeing that they have a an effect without really understanding what the mechanism is of that, mm-hmm. and it uh it concerns us a little bit. But we're at like, the same well, time, that worked. Yeah, let's keep going. Usually, usually it means we're going to keep looking into this to figure out why it worked. But in the meantime, it's working. So and 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 in, and in those cases uh, for for people for whom uh, drugs don't work. It's it's a lifesaver, sure. and it's a and it's a incredibly relieving therapy to mm-hmm. have available. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, uh, a, a third a third area that that people have hypothesized about is uh, genetic selection or or genetic engineering, which is so definitely far beyond us right now. Because okay, there are a couple genes that have been implicated in altruistic behavior. But studies into the whole genome of, of human people definitely indicate that, that it's probably like a lot of genes working together along with a lot of environmental factors that, that make people altruistic or jerks. Yeah, I mean, that's taking a step even farther back from us understanding what's going on in the brain. So in mm-hmm. the brain, you know, we've implicated a few major regions, but it's still there's a lot of mystery. Sure. You know, what exactly is the neural substrate for morality? Is it a whole brain kind of thing that's just going to be too hard to understand? And now you got to step back and say, now what are all the things that make the parts of the brain behave the way they do? Right, right. right. And and uh, obviously, if you're talking about a moral bioenhancement that uh, has the the largest blanket of uh, of effect, then you would want to go all the way back to the most basic unit that you could. But it becomes progressively more difficult to identify all of the variables you need to understand in order to actually make it work. Yeah. That also, though, if you're if you're going to back up all the way to say, now we're not modifying an adult, but we are trying to create humans from the start. And create you know. an embryo yeah. that will be the most moral. Yeah, human. exactly. Altering germ cells to produce yeah. moral babies that grow up to be moral adults. I mean, if you're starting at the beginning, it just seems like you could work harder to educate kids <laughs> to be moral. <laughs> but that that's not going to work eh. every time, right? Because yeah. we do oh, think sure. that there are, there's pretty good evidence that there are genetic conditions that you can be born with that affect your moral behavior. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. Also, on a related note, Moral Babies was one of my favorite uh, Saturday morning cartoons. It's Jim Henson's Moral Babies. Moral Babies. Great. Oh, I see. Yeah, uh-huh. it's great. Uh-huh. So... We've kind of touched on this a little bit, but why would anyone advocate for moral bioenhancements in the first place? I mean, <laughs> we have the we have the bit at the top of the show where we have the philosophers who said, you know, since the dawn of humanity, we have had morality, uh, and it and it worked pretty well for us when we were all in our own little small groups that were more or less, uh, you know, self sustaining and 
maybe only occasionally had contact with other small groups. Uh-huh. But this is that that level of morality is no longer sufficient to uh, to account or, or to make us make moral quote unquote decisions uh, in a larger context, in a global context. Yeah, I mean, I'd say that if you if you just assume that it works as we would want it to and you take away all of the potential caveats, it's obvious why we would want it. You just you would rather be around people who treat other people right and don't do selfish, dangerous things. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, imagine a world in where in, in which everyone had these bioenhancements. Right. Right. We're not talking about you have uh, uh, identified one subpopulation and they're going to be subjected to this because, I mean, obviously I, I, and I'm using loaded words here on purpose, uh-huh. but rather this is something that affects all humans. It becomes something that is uh, wh- whether it's mandated or everyone somehow it's just magically global and we've all agreed to do it. Then then suddenly uh, it sounds like yeah, things would be kind of awesome that people would all be making choices that didn't uh, benefit themselves at the expense of someone else. They would try to make choices that would benefit multiple people or at least not cause hardship to other people while it's benefiting yourself. Dogs and cats living together, mass utopia. Yes, exactly. That's that's the uh, that is like the the idealistic vision of what this would be like. Right? No, yeah, of course, no, no crime, no wars, uh, no no poverty. Yeah, all all that good stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. <laughs> so so cool. So that that's um, all at face value. Obviously, quite good. And you might ask, on top of that, then. If we think it's possible to make things like this, then do we have a responsibility yeah, to is it our, create bioenhancements? Is it our duty if we know that we can do this? Yeah, if you were to measure up all the people who would be who would benefit from this, right? Who whose condition is such that if this change were made, they would have uh, more positive influences on their existence. And then you were to measure all the people who you could argue, well, maybe it's not a negative impact, but it uh, it impedes their ability to succeed at the rate they've been going at. If you look at it from that perspective, chances are you're going to say, well, from a numbers, like on paper, it makes total sense to do this. Sure. Because a relatively few number of people, when you're talking about billions, are going to have a slight – a slight to maybe well even let's say a, a um, extreme impact on their ability to improve their position in life uh, has been it, you know that that's been put in place you know they're not badly off they just can't mm-hmm. be better off than they are now easily but then you have billions of people who can come from a place of uh, poverty of conflict of real struggle and be removed from that. Uh, it, it, on paper, that's an easy thing to to see and say. Well, it makes sense. We need to flip that switch. Uh, sure. The also the philosophical argument could be made um, that that traditional methods of betterment, uh, uh, education and socialization, stuff like that, are only going to take us so far mm-hmm. uh, in 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 this incredible future that we're trying to build. And so, like, eventually, is is this the best way, in fact, to go about it? Well, and and I think in particular, not to get political, but in particular, <laughs> in 2016, we've seen some evidence of things that that have shocked some people, where uh, 
where we see that some beliefs like uh, let's let's go with xenophobia being one are much more ingrained and widespread in different parts of the world than maybe you had been aware of before mm-hmm. 2016. And it raises some real hard questions. Sure. And it, and by xenophobia, I mean, xenophobia by itself, that word, using the word phobia, you're talking about a rational fear. But mm-hmm. there are certainly people who held very strong beliefs because of what they perceive as being hard truths. And you, you might think, well, I, th- I could have sworn we made more progress on the education of people to understand what the root causes of problems are versus what the perceived problems are. But it's clear that that hasn't really happened. And that's what I think also fuels philosophers like the two I mentioned previously mm-hmm. uh, in saying, like, we've got to take a step further because yeah, yeah. the traditional approaches aren't working. Uh, right, right. And going further down that line, are our moral bioenhancements going to be the only way in fact to to save humanity from ourselves to uh to to prevent some kind of global uh war disaster yeah. catastrophe uh, we we have the power i mean we have the i don't mean the power to save ourselves i mean we have the power to destroy ourselves i think that's quite clear we mm-hmm. have nuclear weapons we mm-hmm. have the power to change our climate in devastating ways yeah. it is totally at our fingertips well, to destroy the earth moreover we have the power to not or make destroy our species to, at the very least right, yeah. yeah we have the power to not make choices that would prevent that from happening right mm-hmm. like in the case of climate change there have been stories numer- on numerous occasions about the things that we need to do in order to at least slow down climate change. At this point, stopping it is much further out than a few years, right? Even if we were to stop all activity that uh, contributes to climate change right now, that's something – there's momentum there mm-hmm. that would take years for it to finally get to a point where it stops. Like, and like maybe, centuries, like yeah. hundreds and hundreds yeah. and thousands of years. So, you know, there's that. But if – with some people would argue that without this moral bioenhancement the fact that we know we need to make those changes isn't enough right we have to have mm. some other form of Motivation. compulsion right. <laughs> well compulsion. you mentioned long term thinking early on yeah. i mean people they're just saying what so you're saying this isn't going to affect me in the next few months i don't care yeah <laughs> yeah it's not going to does this right. is this going to make my air conditioning bill lower next summer no well i mean might as well just crank everything up right now then. I mean a lot of people can't even properly factor the long-term personal risks of something like smoking sure. or something. Mm-hmm. So I mean it, it's only understandable that – I'm not trying to make excuses for it. But people – Oh, no. It's we, a very we human just, behavior. Yeah, yeah. You're saying, OK, so it's going to have this kind of vague generalized effect mm-hmm. that's hard to be specific about in like many years from now. Well, more, I, moreover, if it's an effect that's so large that you think, well, my personal behaviors are going to have so little impact on the overall problem that it doesn't even matter mm-hmm. because as an individual, when you look at your individual contribution to the problem, it seems minuscule and then you feel like, well, even if – no matter what I do, there's no impact on the end result. The only impact is if everyone does it, right? Mm-hmm. So that gets back to this idea of, of mandating this moral bioenhancement. OK. And so we're going to call it there for the first half of this conversation on moral bioenhancements. But, but, but if feel- you want to hear the second half – Join us again next time. Yeah. Uh, and, and I feel morally obligated to mention that we recorded the whole thing and then made the determination that it was too long. 
I don't want to give people a, a, the the sense that we just decided to stop here and then picked well, up again. Well, See, we, this is a potential problem is this kind of sheepishness Jonathan is showing. I, I think you should be more resolute. Yes. And you need a certain amount of immorality to do that. How can we fix that? I'm sorry that I'm a morally perfect being, guys. <laughs> I feel so badly about that now. I'll go and mow your lawns as a way of saying I'm sorry. Uh, if you'd like to tell Jonathan where your house is so that you, he can mow your lawn as well. Can get Don't do that. You can. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. That's, Jonathan does not need that power. No, yeah. but if you do want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email. The address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com or you can drop us a line on Twitter or Facebook. Twitter, we are fwthinking. Over on Facebook, just search fwthinking. Our profile will pop up. You can send us a message. Let us know what you think about this episode. Any thoughts you have about future episodes, maybe there's some subject you really want us to dive into. Let us know, because we love doing this kind of stuff, guys. And we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters— With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there. I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people people in an unscripted unvarnished way is getting to to say something to them hear back from them know that i'm part of the routine and i look forward to getting on the air i look forward to it in these exciting times we're looking to the math the strategy and analytics and the magic the creative spark more than ever listen to math and magic on our very own iHeartRadio app apple podcast or wherever you get your podcast Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. 
And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.